Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Vladine's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. If it takes considering race to implement and enforce Section 2 of the Voter Rights Act, then maybe we shouldn't have to enforce the Voter Rights Act. This is a, a wacko political project designed to erase the power and voice of people by erasing race. What we should be erasing is racism, not race itself. That's our guest today, Damon T. Hewitt, President and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Great to be here with you, Jackie. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law, and we also have campuses in San Luis Obispo, Santa Rosa, and Bakersfield. Jackie, today, Damon T. Hewitt is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Hewitt has more than 20 years of civil rights litigation and policy experience, including prior leadership roles in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and public sectors. Formerly, as executive vice president at the National Lawyers Committee, he coordinated the organization's strategic, programmatic, and operational efforts to advance the fight for racial justice. He worked for more than a decade as an attorney at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, where he was lead counsel on a variety of litigation and policy matters and supervised teams of lawyers and policy experts. We are very excited today to talk with Damon about issues that he has been actively involved in throughout his career, ranging from affirmative action, progressive education reform, and voting rights. Thanks, Mitch. I'm very excited to hear from Damon today about two Supreme Court cases that were heard this term involving the question of whether colleges and universities can use race as a factor in their processes. This is something that's been litigated for decades. And I I actually had the opportunity to submit a, an amicus brief when I was president of the Society of American Law Teachers in the Fisher case, which is just one of many cases that have come before the Supreme Court on this very issue. The two cases before the court this term that we're waiting for a decision about at the time that we're recording this Students for Fair Admissions, a nonprofit organization which identifies as its mission the elimination of race and ethnicity from college admissions, sued both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. SFA asked the court to overrule a case Gruder v. Bollinger decided 19 years ago, where a closely divided court held that the Equal Protection Clause does not prohibit colleges and universities from using race as a factor in admissions. So that kind of sets the stage for at least part of what we're going to talk about in today's episode. Well, Damon, welcome to Sidebar. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to join you for this conversation. Why don't I start us off? So Damon, let's start with a 
basic question that isn't tethered to the Constitution. We often hear these cases discussed as affirmative action measures, as if the policies were in place solely to help a subset of students. But before we dive into the legal questions before the court, I want to discuss the educational benefits of diversity. We have study after study within academic settings and within corporate settings to show the benefits of diversity. Why can't colleges and universities simply say, we have designed an admissions policy to ensure high academic quality and to ensure the educational benefits for all students? Well, Jackie, that's a great question. I think the answer to your question lies in, I guess, a couple of things. One is history and fact from many years ago to the present day. The other part of it is an understanding of what Brown v. Board of Education got wrong. And the holding in Brown is underlined by an observation, which is along the lines of segregation in public schools, de jure segregation by law, harms, as the court found, the colored students and leads to the onset of an inferiority complex. But I wonder sometimes, what if the litigants in Brown were Black students and white students, that there was something about the segregation that harmed all of them? Now, of course, I do not mean to have a false equivalence between the plight and struggle of Black students and white students, certainly at that time, uh, and not even now. But the reading was more about, well, something is happening that's wrong with these Black students, not to them, but with them. Something's wrong with them. So we have to do something about it. So that, that's a long-winded way of saying, Jackie, it's important to be specific and explicit in terms of understanding what is it we are correcting for, what is it we're solving for, and what is the future we are trying to build. I want to just hone in on that conversation about Brown v. Board of Education. Just to, to put a fine point on it, it started the narrative that we're fighting against right now, which is Brown v. Board of Education was about helping Black children and not about creating an academic environment that was best for all children. And Damon, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought the social science research that was presented to the court in Brown v. Board of Education was actually about diversity being a benefit for all students, but the court didn't believe that would be a palatable message for the public. Is that an accurate representation of the social science research at the time? Certainly of the research, there was evidence and, and research about the impact on Black students and white students, but the court focused on the impact on Black students. It is an inherently paternalistic narrative that bedevils us today. Damon, taking us to the current cases, University of North Carolina, one of the colleges, was founded in 1789. And, you know, history tells us it didn't admit its first black male undergraduate student until 1955 and would take another eight years before a black woman was admitted. So the history is there that says for over 160 years, UNC explicitly excluded people based on race. How do you respond to people that say, okay, fine, that's a historical fact, but how does that get us to where race-conscious admissions should be okay going forward? In a couple of ways. Number one, 
the court's jurisprudence on what we call affirmative action or race conscious admissions is based upon the diversity rationale, which Jackie alluded to earlier, that comes from the Supreme Court decision in Bakke from 1978, Justice Powell's controlling opinion there. But the rationale that actually is more palatable and more reflective of facts on the ground, as it were, will really be a remedial justification. Because the race conscious admissions policies at UNC, as a matter of current law, are not permitted to remedy, to be designed to remedy that prior discrimination, that prior exclusion, because there is not a current active court decree requiring it as a remedy. It's almost as if you wipe away that history and pretend as if the playing ground is level, which is simply not the case. In fact, schools like that that have legacy admissions programs really are linking today's admissions patterns to yesterday's exclusion. They almost function as kind of a a grandfather clause, the kind of thing you saw in voting rights, where if your grandfather voted, then you can vote. A, one of those devious means of preventing Black people from being uh, given access to the ballot. So the ignorance of history, the willful ignorance of history, is certainly problematic. The other thing I hear on that topic is, okay, I give you the history, I give you the need to have remediation, but when is enough enough? What are we measuring? What are we trying to accomplish? When can we say everything's equal? But I'm sure you have heard those arguments before. Well, Mitch, not only have I heard the arguments, I had to sit through an excruciatingly long Supreme Court oral argument in both the UNC and Harvard cases where that continuously came up. And you know what happens you know, when you sit in one place for too long, you get fidgety. And I, it took everything I had not to jump out of my seat, especially when this question came up about, well, what's the endpoint? But logically, a diversity rationale shouldn't have an endpoint. That's actually the beauty of what I'll give the court, uh, Justice Powell, for the diversity rationale and Justice O'Connor, who affirmed that in, in her majority opinion in Grutter. But some people are trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're saying, well, they want to cabin us to a diversity rationale, but then treat the diversity rationale as if it's a remedial scheme. So it's intellectually dishonest at its core uh, for there to be an endpoint. Look, the last thing I'll say is on this part is that our society is becoming increasingly diverse, which is a good thing. Making room for everybody. How can our institutions of higher education or our workplaces, for that matter, be going in the opposite direction? That should trigger an immediate kind of cognitive, cognitive dissonance that tells us something is amiss here. This should not be a naturally occurring state. In fact, something must be very deeply wrong. We are going to take a quick 90-second break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return, we'll discuss Justice Jackson's participation in the UNC argument and her reliance on an originalist approach to the Equal Protection Clause. Are you getting ready to start your bar prep journey? Kaplan is the only major bar review offering live instruction with both live and on-demand classes. With Kaplan's Bar Prep, you get the ideal amount of structure and guidance, no matter how you choose to prep. Join a real-time or on-demand class, stay on track with personalized study plans, and learn from expert attorneys. Kaplan helps thousands of professionals pass the bar each year. Start your journey today. 
Find your bar review at captest.com slash bar. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. And David, I just want to follow up on your experience at oral argument because Justice Jackson had to recuse herself from the Harvard oral argument. And so the court divided the two cases to allow Justice Jackson to sit and participate in the UNC oral argument. She had some really interesting questions for Students for Fair Admissions Council about race-conscious admissions. And I'm just wondering how you experienced the two oral arguments differently, or what did she add to the oral argument in UNC that maybe was missing from Harvard? Well, she added two things. One is just a sense of both historical perspective and some perspective that is, if not directly from, at least informed by a lived experience. She put herself in the shoes of a Black student applying to UNC. And to paraphrase, as you know, Jackie, she said, the counsel, you mean to tell me that if I'm a white student and for generations my family attended UNC, I can talk about that in my admissions application and it should be considered and favored. But if I'm a Black student whose forebears were excluded, enslaved, discriminated against, and prevented from attending this university. You mean to tell me I can't talk about that? And what she did was by putting herself in the shoes of a Black applicant, she took it to a place where it's not just a legal or academic argument. It's about denying an individual any sense of self-expression or self-determination. It's almost a First Amendment issue. It's an erasure, a form of erasure of one's experience and voice. That was important. That was really huge for her to be able to add that into the mix in that argument. I'm going to move us slightly off the topic of the cases only because what you just said, I think, lends itself to a slightly different question. And that has to do with the idea of erasure. I want to put the cases that we're talking about in a broader context. We're recording this at the time when states are eliminating funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in colleges and universities, prohibiting the teaching of so-called divisive concepts in our history uh, involving race, banning books, and many by Black authors or those involving discussions of race. 
how do you see the connection between these cases and those so efforts? Th there are connections between the race conscious admissions cases in higher ed and what's happening in other contexts in k-12 so for a long time we we're told that we're in a post-racial society after george floyd was murdered and people had somewhat of an awakening and took to the streets, at least for a while. I think, you know, that line lost its luster that we're in a post-racial society. But there's a broader political project from the courts and conservatives, uh, ultra-conservatives in particular, which is not so much trying to persuade us that racism no longer exists, but trying to leverage the fact that race itself is a social construct and telling us that race doesn't matter, or even more so in the cases that Anytime race comes up, it is inherently wrong. That is the, in a nutshell, what this made-up organization, Students for Fair Admissions, is saying in these race-conscious admissions cases. They did the same thing, you know, same people uh, elsewhere at UT Austin and, and, and elsewhere. But it's also similar to what we're being told in the K-12 context. Well, if you mention race or racism, that is divisive. And that's going to separate people. So you can't talk about that in the curriculum. And in fact, you can't have any books in this school or in this library that go to those issues. But it also is playing out in voting rights too, a much different context. And I'll be brief on this. There's a case before the Supreme Court right now about whether Alabama must create a second majority minority district because of the size of the black population there. And under federal law, under section two of the Voting Rights Act, Alabama clearly should. Even conservative judges on the on the panel uh, in the lower court found that Alabama should. Well, Alabama's argument is now, in part, well, if we do that, we have to consider race. And considering race is wrong. So if it takes considering race to implement and enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, then maybe we shouldn't have to enforce the Voting Rights Act. So this is a, a wacko political project designed to erase the power and voice of people by erasing race. What we should be erasing is racism, not race itself. Damon, you talked about the conservative composition of this court. And what we know is that this court has gone to great pains in recent decisions to rely on our nation's history and tradition and try to discern what they consider an originalist's approach to constitutional questions. Doesn't this just ignore what we know about the 14th Amendment's history? If we acknowledge that the same Congress that considered and rejected the objections to the 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Act concerning special relief to blacks also proposed the 14th Amendment, isn't it inconceivable that the 14th Amendment was intended to prohibit all race-conscious relief measures? Mitch, if you're not a lawyer, you should play one on TV <laughs> or on podcast because you you hit the nail on the head. And that's actually to, to the other question. That's the other thing that Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson brought to the table. She raised the originalist originalism argument on her own, and she made the very same point. That's a, another way of erasure is to uh, have a false reading or a sanitized reading of history. It's the way many people read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work to mean one very, I guess, safe and sanitized thing and not the more provocative things that he said and did during his career and in, in short, all too short life. So yeah, a fair reading of our own history is that the 14th Amendment itself was race conscious. And so to suggest that the amendment that was race conscious requires race neutrality 
that's not supported in law or in fact, but that is essentially uh, how the courts have read. It is an acontextual, ahistorical, illogical analysis. I listened to the oral argument. I heard Justice Jackson invoke this, and my first reaction was, wow, she is meeting them on the playing field with her own originalist historical facts. Right. And and that worried me as well, because I don't want that kind of interpretation to be the reigning interpretation, because when the Constitution was created, I couldn't vote. Damon, you couldn't vote. Mitch may have been able to vote. It's unclear. So I don't like the originalist viewpoint, right. but she would at least keep them honest in that they would need to respond to those historical facts when they wrote what may be a majority opinion undermining the our understanding of the Equal Protection Clause. Th that's right. It is a tricky argument. And I think where it plays out the most is not just from the bench or in the ultimate rulings, but take a look at Senate confirmation hearings for judges. And to a person, including friends of mine who are now confirmed as federal judges with life tenure, certainly in this administration, they say, oh, no, 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 no. The Constitution is what it is. The text is what it is. And that's not untrue. If we take that too literally, then we are stuck in a past. Like, and I would say my view is not so much that or the Constitution's meaning can shapeshift over time. I believe that the court doesn't create new rights. The court recognizes that those rights were there all along. We're going to take a quick 90-second break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return, Damon is going to offer his insight into the court's direction and how higher education institutions may and should respond to it. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertis is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An Honorable Profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. 
I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Damon, thinking forward about regardless of how this set of cases come down, at the end of the day, the universities and the educators will have the opportunity to do their interpretation of how to implement whatever the decision is, good or bad, or whichever side you take on this. There's been discussion that there are other ways that even if those in favor of race-based conscious admissions don't get the decision they want, we can still accomplish the outcome. I know you've worked closely with the universities. You've worked closely on these issues. I'm sure that's not the direction they want to go, but can you share some thoughts about that? Could it be not as dire as we think at the actual application in the near term, or is that just being naive? Well, it's, it's not being naive. I think you're appropriately hopeful, but we have to be hopeful in a and in a way that's grounded in context. If we look at what's happened in states that have had their own state-level bans on race-conscious admissions, California, Michigan, for example, uh, we have seen, despite what the other side says, significant declines in not only the numbers of students of color on those campuses, Black and Latino students in particular, but declines in emissions rates and also in, in the number of applications as well, depending on the year, right? So it, it has been a struggle. It is certainly not a success story. It is a perseverance and perhaps survival story that if you live in one of those states that you want to attend your state flagship college or, or law school or professional school, that you get to do it. That's great, but it's certainly by no means a success story. Uh, it has been a, a mighty struggle. To the point of the question, rather, Mitch, about whether there are other methods and means available, sure, they're not quite as effective. But I do think that if there are losses, big or small, in either or both of these cases before the Supreme Court, I won't call it a silver lining, but there's a, a pathway born of necessity, which is for higher ed institutions to give back to first principles. Look, they want to be compliant with the law, of course, but most of these institutions want to be viewed as elite. And elite means selective. And selective means reliance on normative criteria that themselves artificially exclude black and brown students. In our marriage brief in the UNC case, we explain how over-reliance on things like test scores is bad because those tests underpredict talent among black and brown students systematically. That's why some schools have started to reduce their reliance or say they're no longer required. But the reason why they're required is that they're a shortcut to get to selectivity. And selectivity means basically two things. It means that the schools will be viewed as elite because that's the real obsession. And it also means exclusion, that they'll exclude more people. We're recording this, Damon, before the court actually issued its decision. But I'm wondering if you could give us your insights into the direction you think the court is going and what they're searching for? I believe, Jackie and Mitch, that this court is searching for something. At least some of the justices are searching for something. Those at the extremes, we know what they're searching for. 
They want to eradicate all consideration of race, which is impossible to legislate from the bench, uh, but they certainly would, would love to try. But others are searching. I think Justice Kavanaugh is searching for something. He seeks out Black law students, elite Black law students at elite schools, such as Harvard, to hire them as law clerks. And I can't know for sure because of the inherent value that these students bring, because he's committed to diversity, or because he likes the optic. Whatever it is, he's doing that. And he's not going to stop doing that. And I could tell that he's searching for something and trying to reconcile that with his general ideological bent. And having litigated a case before him when he was on the D.C. Circuit, I can tell you, he's pretty conservative. So the question is, in this search, will Justice Kavanaugh and at least one other judge find what they're looking for that allows them to uphold the rule of law, articulate a clear rule, and frankly, whether justices like to admit it or not, try to feel good about the decision uh, in a way where they won't be viewed as a pariah, in a way where they won't uh, ruin the nation. So I think they're searching for something. So if this court affirms its prior holdings in Baki and Gruder, then it means it's found something that justices are looking for, for those who are willing to search. If the court strikes down the programs at Harvard and UNC and does so by overruling its prior decisions in Baki and Gruder and Fisher for that matter, then it means that likely the justices didn't find what they were looking for or some, not enough of them were looking for something at all, that the outcome was said to be on the merits, but ostensibly predetermined from where this court wants to go. A theme that has run through our shows is really what it will take to achieve a multiracial, pluralistic democracy in the United States. And certainly what we've talked about today, especially that idea of erasure, doesn't lend itself to thinking that we're moving in the right direction. Not everyone who listens is an attorney, and not every attorney who listens is going to be able to be involved directly in cases or in policy decisions like you are. What can we do as citizens in our schools, in our communities, in our states to help us move forward with that ultimate goal? The thing that everyday people can do to help move forward with the goal of developing and fostering and nurturing and protecting a multiracial democracy that is healthy and effective is to get off the sidelines. Neutrality is status quo. And status quo, despite progress over the decades, is oppression. Being neutral does not work. And that's why race neutrality is a fallacy. Someone could say, I don't see race. See, I voted for Barack Obama. And what you're saying is, see, I voted for a Black man. We all see race. The question is, do we value it? And are we honest with ourselves about it? So I would say to everyone, get off the sidelines and not just pick a political side, but Pick the side of justice, the truth. Pick the side of standing in solidarity with people in your own community who don't look like you. See your humanity in theirs, and hopefully theirs in yours. Because at the end of the day, this experiment called a multiracial democracy that we're trying to build here requires everyone to have voice, opportunity, and frankly, power in ways that are not adverse to each other, but have significance for each person, each community in their own right.
everyone deserves that. And so let's see if we're committed to it. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Damon. Thank you. It's been great to have you on. Likewise. Appreciate you. Thanks so much. Jackie, this has been exactly the type of program I hoped that we would have with Damon Hewitt. I'm so impressed with the work they've done. This is a heavy lift on a serious issue that's important to so many of us. In fact, as you've heard me say before, this is important to me personally because I grew up in a segregated Texas, a small town in Texas where the K-12 schools were segregated until sixth grade for me. So I had six years of education in a dual school system under the old separate but equal policy and then watched over six years as we had the type of literally integrated but communal program with one set of schools, with one set of standards, and I saw the benefit of that. It was important to me then, and it continues to be important to me now, and I'm particularly pleased to see the type of effort that Damon Hewitt and his organization has put into protecting those rights that were so hard fought for in those early days. Mitch, I really appreciate that part of your experience and how that drives you in the work that you do now. I think one of the things that I thought was really beneficial to talk about was how everything that we're fighting for in the Supreme Court right now has been built on this false narrative that first emerged in Brown v. Board of Education, that idea that we were lifting up and helping a particular race, Black students, rather than recognizing, and what the social science showed, was that education and academic quality is better for all students when they have access to and are exposed to a diversity of people, viewpoints, backgrounds, etc. And that false narrative has really driven the conversation and the legal arguments that are being made in a way that undermines what we're ultimately trying to get to. And so I really appreciated him pointing out that there is no endpoint to diversity. Diversity is an ongoing project that we're going on to. So this idea of when will it end? And the answer is never. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind. And you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org. Thank you to our producer and musical muse who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.